This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I want to talk about school closings, which is a, a, an issue that, it, you know what, it's, it's reaching just about every corner of the community right now. And uh, not just this community, but also across the Bay in Burlington as well. And we've talked about both issues, and it's, it's become very contentious, as we know. Parents are upset about proposed school closures and the impact that it's going to have on their communities. This is not just about bricks and mortar, as a number of the parents said. Last night, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board public meeting saw more than 100 parents, staff, and trustees come together to discuss proposed closures and mergers. Well, it didn't go that well. Uh, I don't think everybody left there saying, oh, now we understand and we're okay with this. The aim of the, uh, the mergers and closures, of course, is to attract more provincial funding for some of the new schools that need to be done, but uh, it's not going smoothly. Todd White's the chairman of the board. He also is the Ward 5 trustee, of course, for the uh, public school board. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about exactly what's going to be going on and what's happened so far. Morning, Todd. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Great to join you. Uh, kudos to you and the board for having these public meetings and, and airing out these differences right now. Give me your assessment of what happened last night. It's it's really we've done this for a number of years, and it's actually a, a pretty uh, successful process. It, it's certainly pretty raw input and, and feedback from community members. But um, essentially, we hold uh, evenings as many as uh, necessary to hear anyone and everyone who wants to give us their two cents on uh, what we may or may not do. Uh, so last night, we heard from about 30-plus uh, delegations representing uh, schools in both the Ancaster area and uh, the West Hamilton, Central Hamilton areas. And uh, it was a pretty productive night, but like I said, uh, certainly folks didn't hold back. They told us exactly what they, they think, and that's, quite frankly, what we asked them to do. So very happy uh, with the feedback that we received. In the many years that this process has been ongoing, uh, and this predates your time as chair, Todd, I mean, sometimes parents have accused members of the board of hearing but not listening. How do you address that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. In terms of uh, our current board of trustees and uh, these two processes, this hasn't been very political in nature. You know, I'm watching, and you'd mentioned the uh, the Burlington school closures, for instance. seems very contentious, very political. Um, schools pitted against schools. This process is a bit different in Hamilton. We've had that those flavors in the past, um, but trustees in this case are really looking for how do we how do we move forward in these areas what's the how do we want to structure our communities our schools so they're healthy five years from now ten years from now twenty five years from now because if we don't ask those type of questions and create strong plans we're going to be back at this five years ten years from now which to me isn't acceptable let's let's talk about some of the things that are on the table right now and i know that uh, there were a couple of different schools uh, that uh, that, that had some real legitimate concerns. And, and any time you, you target a school for closure or potential closure in a situation like that, you know you're going to get pushback. And, and I guess the question that most parents are going to ask is, why us? How, mm-hmm. do, you, how, how do you deal with that? Well, and, and that's something that, that I think is, is really important because certain schools get named in, in some of these reviews, whether they close or not, is a, is a different story. But it really undervalues um, the work that happens at those schools. We know they're great schools. We know that they have great principals and teachers, and they've been successful for years. So when you hear your school named as potentially closing, you think, well, well what did we do wrong? I mean, everything you see on the ground appears fantastic. Why would we want to change it? So you have to balance that with what is good for, for that entire area of schools, you know, what is the what are the long-term plans and structures that are actually going to be successful? And then when you start looking at the opportunities between schools, on one hand, we'd love to say that all schools are equal and provide equal opportunity, but we know that with 
historic planning that there are have and have not schools and for me that's that's completely unacceptable so we need to start looking at a number of those issues from a big picture perspective is it really just about student population no, no, and, that, and that's the funny thing. It, it really isn't. Um, it has been in the past. Don't get me wrong. When you have schools that are uh, half empty or more, there's, there's some serious problems. In Ancaster review area, that's really not the concern. Um, there's more than enough students. Uh, one school in particular, Queens Rangers, a uh, very, very small school, um, they might have a population issue. But the fact is that the board doesn't have a trouble with small schools. We just want to keep them healthy with uh, populations where we don't have split grades, triple grades, uh, administrative problems. So you get to a certain point where the ministry doesn't even fund you for a full principal at a school if your population dips below uh, a certain amount. So there, there are certain thresholds that we need to establish to keep schools strong, whether you're a rural school or an urban school. So we have to look at it from some of those perspectives as well. But when you do this, are you looking at this holistically? In other words, closing a school and, and reallocating those students, if that's going to be the part of the solution anyway, to another school, oftentimes involves busing and there's increased costs for that sort of thing too. Do you factor all that in? Yeah, absolutely. The, the one thing is, in the end of this, there will be a lot of folks happy with the results. There will be some folks certainly that, that aren't pleased. But the one thing that, that I would say, just in terms of those transportation questions, long-term planning questions, is what would upset me personally is if someone were to say to us that your decisions are short-sighted. Um, they have been in the past, and other uh, school boards and school closures uh, have been short-sighted. In terms of these cases, that's really not the intent. It's, it's not the outcome. There's nothing that is rushing us in this process. We're considering all of the information, and, and if we need more time, we'll take more time. But we're not looking for a quick fix where if we close the school, uh, money will be saved and, and we're under some pressure by the ministry to do so. That's really not the case. We have some pretty poor infrastructure across the city. And if you go back to 2010, we were rock bottom in terms of as bad as you could get. We had to make some serious planning adjustments. It, it, money is certainly an issue, um, but there's a lot of people with money that have made bad planning decisions. Um, we had to get our planning uh, in shape. And luckily, the dollars have followed reasonably from the Ministry of Education as well. Let's talk about, quickly, i got about a minute left here, with the, the, the inner city situation, Hess Street and Strathcona Schools. Uh, it, the, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that vis-a-vis -vis student population and community interest, you want a school in that downtown area right now. Is, it, is this an infrastructure thing? Are you worried about, about the state of those two buildings? Oh, 100%. A school needs to be in that area, and I don't know if I said that publicly. I, I mean, I've alluded to it, certainly, but I wouldn't support having no school in that Hess area. You need a school there. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, in terms of, uh, um, to, to the question, in terms of, of the infrastructure there and everything else in place, there are some challenges with the current Hess property and the Strathcona property. Strathcona is the smallest piece of property we have in the board. It's about 1.1 acres. Uh, it's landlocked. You can't put an addition on it. You can't put a portable on it. Um, it's a very small school. So while the population right now fits, um, if we hear about the type of booming populations that, that may be coming in Hamilton, 
those students will be shipped out of the community because you can't expand that school. So you want to create schools with longevity, um, good structures, so we don't end up in these situations when the roof's falling in or caving in or students are being bussed halfway across the city because they can't fit into a school. So we want to have all of those questions answered, and there certainly could be improvements uh, in some of those areas. Well, you've got options there. I mean, there's the Hess property itself, uh, and I know with at least one other school now, you're talking about a rebuild, a Fabray, I guess it is, uh, on the same site. Uh, but it'd be nice to have some place to keep those students while that construction's going on. I, I just harken back to the stadium construction on the same site as Ivor Wynn. It didn't go well, uh, as you may great. recall, Todd. Well, and it'd be nice to have some green space around those schools as well. Yeah. I mean, we sit on eight acres of property across the street at Sir John A. Um, the city owns property in the area, not that I'm suggesting a particular property, but we've done some pretty creative things in the past um, where we've, we've talked to the city who are landowners. We've, ta- we've expropriated property. We've built on our existing properties. So it could be Sir John A. It could be another piece of property. Um, or it could just be status quo. If we can't pull it together, like I said, those schools are needed. So if we can improve it, let's, let's go for it. If not, then perhaps status quo is the answer. All right, what's uh, what's the time frame? When do you have to actually uh, make a decision on this and move forward? Uh, June 5th uh, for Hess uh, and the West Hamilton area, and I think uh, Ancaster is one week earlier, which would be the Monday, March, uh, May 27th or something like that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. David Heska is uh, one of the parents involved in the uh, Keep Hess Open program on the parent council there at Hess Street School. He's been a guest on the program in the past, and he joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show on CHML to uh, bring us up to speed on uh, what's going on with that circumstance. Morning, David. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Let's talk a little bit about what the board is proposing right now. I'm getting the sense from, uh, from Todd White's comments that by hook or by crook, there's going to be a school in that area. It may be on the Hess Street site. It may be on the John A. site across the road. We don't know yet. Are, are you happy with what the board is proposing now? Yes, I think that it is a good compromise. We started this process with a report that the staff was recommending putting all of the students from Hess Street down to the north end at Benetto, and yep. everyone knew that that was unacceptable. And my preference, and I verbalized this last night uh, in my delegation to all of the trustees, would always be to have nine schools in nine communities to maintain the walkability and all of that. And I do not want to be the person coming out to say, close Strathcona, move them all to Hess, because I recognize the value that a school like Strathcona has. However, through the working committee meetings that I was involved with, we came to see that the money wasn't going to flow from the province unless something was adjusted. And maintaining all nine, the lack of funds coming from the province has almost led myself and a lot of our working committee to go down the path that says, well, let's kind of settle and say, if we can't have all nine, then let's at least have eight, and let's make sure that one of those eight remains near Strathcona Hess Sir John A. site. Well, you must be looking rather longingly at that Sir John A. site. I mean, Hess Street School is is an older school. It's it's you know there's there's well there is no green space. I mean, you got a little asphalt uh, you know playground there. Uh, if you could relocate that just a, a couple of feet away there on the other side of the street, almost kitty corner to that site right now, that could be a win win for everybody. Yes, I fully agree. And some of the concerns that people expressed yesterday was the traffic flows that happened down York and uh, Cannon, obviously. And so that's something that I hope to be a part of a transition planning team that is looking at 
a new school either on the HES or the Sir John A site. And those would be things that we would need to work with the city and the trustees to decide maybe we could build the pedestrian access bridge or something. I'm not sure, but there, I'm sure there would be options to address some of the issues about how do you get all of the kids across from the Strathcona neighborhood, from the north end, north of uh, York and Cannon, to come across onto a site like Sir John A. Well, and that's where that coordination has to come in, and I'm not so sure that's been done in the past, has it, where, where the city is working with the board and, and, and private sector, I guess, in some cases, too. I mean, walkability is a wonderful phrase, but to make it work and to make it effective, you have to make it safe, too. Yes, exactly. And I think that that was, uh, if I could, there was, I was surprised. There was about 16 or so people that uh, were speaking last night about the West Hamilton central area, and I think five of them including myself, were representing Hess. Six or so were from the Strathcona communities, and then the remaining were scattered from the other schools. And the concern from the Strathcona parents was they felt blindsided. They felt that they were not involved in this process from the start. And I sympathize with them because some of them just found out that their school was going to close in April when this process started back in October, November. So I can imagine their frustration. Yeah, and there's, there's sadly going to be winners and losers no matter what happens here. And and I guess that's the the most frustrating part of this. And I've talked with you. I've talked with people from the Ancaster area. Uh, I've talked with a number of people from Burlington across the Bay, of course, because this is happening with on their high school level right now, and it's getting pretty contentious. And, and the, the thing that's driving everybody crazy here, including your folks, of course, David and Hess, is that in some way, shape, or form, maybe it's an unintended consequence, but a consequence nonetheless, it's pitting neighborhood against neighborhood. Yeah, and that, that's, not what, that's not what we I wanted to be a part of. And surprisingly, actually, last night, Bill, at the uh, board office, I sat through from 5.30 until 8 o'clock, which was the Ancaster one, and then from 8.30 until about 10.30 was ours. And the... I didn't know what to expect regarding the Ancaster one, but if you have my humble opinion, our West Hamilton City downtown one was, I think we were more on the same page, if I can say that, than they have pitted, or I'm not sure who they is, but communities have been pitted against one against another, and there was the keep Queens Rangers open people, and there was the no, we need new schools in Ancaster. So that one, the early part of last night, was a bit more fireworks than the second half. Well, because you've got some older established schools, and you can obviously relate to that, but you've got Queens Rangers Elementary, you've got Fessenden Elementary there, and uh, that one's uh, slated for closure as well. And, and as you've talked about with Hess, and I think the same argument applies to them, this is more than bricks and mortar. Uh, this, is, this is community. This is, this is where people meet. This is where they, they, they talk about issues together. And to have that taken away from them is, is going to be problematic, and especially when the solution that's being offered right now is not very palatable to anybody. I agree. And I think that one of the other things I wanted to express, and I said this last night, was I was disappointed that out of left field in this most recent staff report, they come out and they say, yes, we've listened to all of the work that this committee has done suggesting merging Strathcona and Hess. But then they include this alternative staff option, which all of a sudden, instead of, if they say if money is not in place to fund a new school on the, uh, before Hess and Strathcona, then we're going to just close Hess and bus everyone to Dr. Davies by 2019. 
and they, the paragraph before that in the report, they had said, we have heard the committee and they are strongly opposed to the initial option of busing everyone to Benetto. And yet then the staff come out and change the tune of their song slightly to say, well, actually, we're just going to bust them all now if funding is not available to Dr. Davey, which I implored the trustees last night, do not go down path B. Path B would be as disruptive as all of the uh, concern that we, me and all the parents had for the first option about busing to Ben Edo. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The victim's name not to be published. In fact, there's usually a publication ban over the whole trial, and uh, it is uh, ostensibly used uh, to protect the uh, identity of the uh, the victim or the alleged victim, I guess, as the case may be. Uh, but that's starting to change. Uh, sexual assault victim Crystal Augustine requested her identity be made public. And uh, for and very interesting reasons, Susan Claremont writes about it today in today's Hamilton Spectator. Susan, of course, is the award-winning crime specialist and crime reporter uh, for the Hamilton Spectator, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good, Bill. Thanks. You've been covering this for a long time. Uh, and, and Talk to us about the, 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 the motivation for this story and how you came across uh, Crystal's particular story. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, so, unfortunately, uh, sex assault cases are heard in our courthouse virtually every day. In fact, probably several times a day. Um, these are, are so common, in fact, that I, I can't even begin to cover all of them. Um, but what stands out about this particular case is that the victim, Crystal Augustine, wanted the public to know her name. And for the last 30 years or so, um, there has been a law in place that um, puts an automatic publication ban on sexual assault trials that prohibits um, the publication of um, the identity of the victims. So this victim, Crystal, had to actually apply to the court um, to have that ban lifted so that her name could be reported and her identity could be known. So this is, it's kind of crazy, really, that she actually had to apply to have this done. Because uh, you've been involved in publication bans, Susan. I mean, you've had not just with sexual assault cases, but on the other track, you've challenged them in some cases, some of them successfully. But there's also, uh, from the media standpoint, almost been a, yeah, we'll back off because it's a sexual assault thing, and there's some uh, sympathy, I guess, for alleged victims in situations like this. But but why, why Crystal? Why was she motivated to say, look, I, I've got to do this? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, I deal with publication bans all the time. They're the bane of my existence <laughs> as a reporter. <laughs> and you've written about um, that, too. Yeah, absolutely. But but you're right. On, on sexual assault cases, um, we don't challenge it. <clears throat> it's just the way it is. Uh, but Crystal saw this differently. Um, Crystal, in, in Crystal's case, um, she was sexually assaulted by her father. This has been decided by the court. A jury found him guilty of sexual assault. He's been sentenced. Um, and when there is a publication ban that, that prevents me from identifying the victim, in the case where it's a, a family sexual assault, it also the ban also inadvertently also protects the perpetrator. Because um, for me to name Crystal's father, for instance, her name is 
Crystal Augustine, his name is Robert Augustine, for me to name her father and to describe to my readers that he was convicted of sexually assaulting his daughter, that would identify Crystal, even if I didn't name her. So um, what a ban on a, a victim's identity does is sometimes it also protects the perpetrator. And yeah, Crystal, it's, it's an unintended consequence, but it happens nonetheless. That's right. And so Crystal recognized that, and um, she decided to have the publication ban lifted for a couple of reasons. One is that she wanted her, her father's name out there. She wanted people to know who he is and what he's done. Um, she did that in part in, in case there are other victims, who, uh, his own victims. If there are, she wants them to know that he has been convicted and she wants them to come forward. Um, I have no indication there are other victims, but if there were, that was her thinking. She also wants to set an example for, for other um, sexual assault victims in general. She wants them to know that they are not alone. And she wants them to know that they have nothing to be ashamed of, that, that being the victim of a sexual assault does not mean that you have done anything wrong. And so she has courageously, I think, put herself out there uh, in the hopes of giving strength and, and encouragement to other victims. Because we also know, Bill, that, that very few sexual assault victims actually ever um, come forward and report um, their offense, their, their sexual assault to police. So perhaps this will encourage them to do so. But, and you use the word courageous, and I think it's, it's very apt in this situation, Susan, because there have been situations, as you wrote about in the piece today, uh, where others have come forward. Lucy Ducatur is one of the two reference, of course, from the Gomeshi case. Yeah. Uh, and she was vilified. I, I mean, she was, uh, it, it was not a good experience for her, obviously. Uh, you know, the, the way that uh, the things happened in that trial, obviously Gomeshi was acquitted. But over and above that, uh, the the thrashing that she took both in the courtroom and through the media after that, you thought would be a deterrent to an awful lot of people coming forward. Notwithstanding that, though, Crystal decided to move forward on this. It, it's true. Um, sexual assault cases are, I think, in many ways, the most difficult um, cases uh, to prosecute and, and in many ways the ugliest cases. Um, there are never any winners in this. Um, victims are routinely um, exposed to the world. Their, their most private, um, intimate life uh, often becomes uh, fodder for, for media stories and for, um, and for lawyers uh, in the courtroom. Um, and that was certainly the case in the, the Gene Gameshi situation. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, I've, I always have a difficult time with sexual assault cases because I, I appreciate um, the way the law works. And I appreciate that um, accused have every right to defend themselves. But at the same time, it's very difficult to see um, uh, victims um, being you know, raked over the coals. And, you know, this morning I got an email from someone about um, about Crystal Augustine, um, you know, saying some awful things about her. 
and and that's exactly what you open yourself up to when you go public like she has. So I think it is very courageous. I think she did it for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, I spoke with um, the Hamilton Sexual Assault Center and Lenore Lukasik-Foss, mm-hmm. the executive director there, says that this is a trend that we are seeing more and more sex assault victims um, taking that extra step and, and going public. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where this leads us and whether we really ought to rethink the whole law that um, uh, that leads to the uh, automatic publication ban. If the if she had not done this, uh, Susan, let's go down that road for just a couple of seconds, which, by the way, would have been the traditional way that, that these cases would have been dealt with. But but if Crystal had not decided to do this, uh, we wouldn't know about the conviction. Uh, we wouldn't know about any of the testimony. We wouldn't know, as you've published today, uh, the comments from the uh, the trial judge, uh, Justice Scarica, about this. Uh, none of that would have been available to the public. Is that right? Uh, that's true. And, and I will take that even one step further. And as unsavory as this is, the reality is I probably wouldn't have been there covering the story. Um, what led me to this, why I chose this sexual assault as opposed to all the others that I could have covered this week was, in fact, um, because Crystal had chosen to be identified. Um, and, and she knows that. She and I talked about that, that uh, sadly her story is, is for the most part, not unique. Um, there are other cases like this happening all the time. But, um, you know, she um, set herself apart by, by choosing to be identified. And, and as a result, uh, we, we've heard the details and some of the, the testimony from the trial. Uh, and I get your point. I mean, obviously, that, yeah, and that's, that's, that's not to, to, to make short shift of, of you know, the, the problems and, and the, the trials and tribulations that people are, that have been sexually assaulted have to go through. But, you know, why would you go and cover a case like this if you know you can't write anything about it? Uh, you can't say well, anything about it. It's, it's somewhat frustrating for people in the media in that circumstance. It is frustrating. And, you know, we... Um we often can't tell the whole story. And, uh, um, you know, I think that doesn't do the victim any good or the alleged victim, but I'm also not sure that it does the accused any good. Um, you know, that that's an issue as well. If you look at it from um, the defense side of things, from the accused side of things, um, in many sexual assault cases, um, the accused is identified, um, you know, if, particularly if they're not a family member to the mm-hmm. to the victim, and you know their names out there, their their information is out there. You can Google them whether they're found guilty or not guilty, and see that they were charged with sexual assault, and yet the victim's name um, is protected. So there is an argument to be made in that respect as well. And defense lawyers make that frequently that, um, you know, that if you are going to um, accuse somebody of a, of a crime, then you need to, um, to be transparent and accountable to that charge as well. Did uh, Crystal have the opportunity to do a victim impact statement? She did. Um, it wasn't read into the record, but um, but she shared a copy of it with me, and you know it was powerful. Um, you know, in this is a situation where um, uh, 
she was sexually assaulted by her own biological father. We, we should mention this started at quite a young age. Uh, yeah, between the ages of three and nine. Um, and uh, a jury found her father guilty. Um, the judge, uh, Justice Tony Skrika, said that he had no doubt when he was um, 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 when he was doing the sentencing hearing. He said he had no doubt that there were um, frequent uh, sexual assaults over a long period of time. Um, so. You know, this is something that that Crystal grew up with, and she talked about that in her um, victim impact statement. She talked about how this formed her life. It shaped who she is, and it took a long time for her to muster the courage to come forward. Um, she she didn't report to police until she was an adult, and um, she is now now has children of her own. She has. Um, one child already and is eight months pregnant with her second child. So um, it's had a profound impact on her life. And, um, and you know, for her to, um, to reach back into her life and to go through all this pain that a trial brings uh, is a very, very tough thing to do. You've written about other aspects of this as well, and I'm glad that when you wrote the piece today, Susan, that you brought in the Sexual Assault Center as well and the great work that they do there. And, and, and the work that, that has to be done and the conversations that, that, that must take place, obviously, between uh, victims in circumstances like this and, and trying to move forward in some way, shape, or form. And, and a lot of the time, they just don't want to do this. And, and, and this ties into the report that you wrote about some months ago about uh, some police investigations that where they don't decide to lay charges. Uh, which was very frustrating for an awful lot of alleged victims, uh, and then of course the publication ban, and then the the the, tri- the 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 problems that can ensue, obviously by going public in a trial itself like this. How how is this going to impact going forward right now? Do you think this is a precedent setting, or is this a one off that that a, a a victim like this will actually say, "No, I want the world to know what happened." I, I think we are seeing a, a new trend. Um, I think we are seeing more victims willing. It, it's still, I should say, though, Bill, it's still a very small percentage, but it is increasing. Well, it's a very small percentage um, of victims that even decide to go forward, isn't it? That's true. And, you know, it, it's different for every victim. It doesn't mean that you are not courageous if you decide um to remain um, anonymous and have your identity protected. Um, it's all very difficult. It depends on everybody's circumstances. But but there is increasingly um, more support, just just generally, publicly, for victims of sexual assault. We're, we're understanding it better than we ever have before. We're, we're getting it. And we, as a society, I think, are at a place where we are finally understanding um, that it is not the victim's fault. I mean, you know, in Crystal's case, she was three years old. So, you know, all those ridiculous arguments that, that, that we hear, you know, well, she shouldn't have been, been wearing that. She shouldn't have um, uh, behaved like that. She shouldn't have been in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is a three-year-old child who absolutely did nothing to invite any of this this um, uh, criminal behavior. Um, so, but I think just generally in society, we're accepting the fact that um, that what a woman wears, what she does, what she says, 
um, is no excuse for sexual assault. Um, and so I think that's giving uh, victims, and I shouldn't just say women, um, victims can be men too, of course, um, but it's giving victims um, some some courage and some knowledge that there is support out there. And I think that's um, at play here with more victims um, deciding to be identified. But as, you, as you've mentioned, and, and I've had that discussion with Lenore Lukasik-Foss from uh, Sashet as well, uh, this is not uh, to indicate that this is what victims should do, that they need to go forward like this. They need to, to, to you know, forget about the publication ban. Uh, every situation is different. Every case is different. And, and the ramifications are very different for each and every person. And it's very much a personal decision. It absolutely is. And, you know, the Sex Assault Centre is there for, uh, for victims who choose never to report to police as well. Um, you know, so it, it runs the gamut and, uh, you know, only the person um, in that situation can make a, a decision for themselves. So there is no wrong decision. Um, but it is interesting to see that, especially with some very high profile cases recently, like the, the Jean Gameshi case, um, that women are choosing. I keep saying women, but it's because the majority of mm-hmm. sexual assault victims are women. Um, victims are, are, you know, more often than maybe ever before deciding to, to be identified. Um, so, you know, perhaps it's time to, to take a look at that, um, mandatory publication ban and see if it needs to be, uh, revisited. It's, a. If nothing else, the piece today, I think, creates an awareness of what's going on for everybody involved, and not just for, for potential victims and those that may decide on this, but uh, also, of course, for those involved in the system itself, uh, whether it's uh, places like the Sexual Assault Center and certainly the, the courts and the legal system as well on how they deal with this. And, uh, and obviously, more information, more awareness can only make the system run better. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the more we talk about um, these cases, the more we talk about sexual assault, uh, the more we show that we support um, victims and survivors of sexual assault, um, while at the same time respecting uh, the court process. And, and that can be a very difficult balance. Um, you know, as you know, the, the Gian Gameshi brought a lot of these issues to the forefront, and it was difficult and um, confrontational and, and pretty, um, pretty dramatic. Uh, but I like the fact that we had that conversation and that it maybe moved things forward even just a little bit. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.